I'm Tom Schultz, host of Voices of Montana. Thanks for joining us for the podcast today, brought to you by Blackfoot Communications. Does your home qualify for a $70 discount on your internet bill? Blackfoot Communications is proud to partner with the FCC to help ensure that households can afford the broadband necessary for work, school, health care, and more. For more information on this federal program and to see if your household qualifies for a discount on your Internet service, visit goblackfoot.com slash ACP. Connect to more with Blackfoot Communications. We've talked about Montana's uh, forest industry, the the struggles over, well, gosh, I guess you go back three decades uh, when you start looking at, I'm going to call them radical environmental groups because uh, I think that their agenda is radical. They just, they they want nothing coming out of our resources we can summarize that in a lot of different ways and but let's let's talk about that history of our white timber let's talk uh, uh, about that history with a guy who's been there all those years uh, a lot of those years ed regan is with us former resource manager of our white timber good morning ed how you doing sir good morning tom how are you doing hanging hanging in there it's a it's a beautiful day in our neighborhood good. i guess boy well, the wind's blowing up here <laughs> <laughs> well, we got one coming too, don't we? I guess uh, somebody was saying. I guess Minneapolis was going to get like uh, eighteen inches or more, up to thirty-five. And that's just ridiculous. Uh, Ed, thanks for being here. I appreciate that. You know, you you spent a lot of years um, in Montana's defending Montana's timber industry uh, against where we're at right now, this demise. So, uh, what what are your thoughts as you see our white timber? Of course, it was bad luck. The fires were bad luck, but bad bad forest policy has been playing a part in the loss of mills in Montana for decades. Yeah, we uh, you know we we struggled with the uh, timber supply issues beginning in the '90s. You know, the Forest Service uh, went from their traditional harvest level; they dropped about 90 percent. And about that time, the owner of R.Y. Timber, whose name was Ron Yonke, he was a businessman from Boise, Idaho. Well, in the '90s, he uh, decided he had uh, owned the mill in Townsend at that time. And he had decided that he better start buying some timberlands, you know, to keep his mills running and uh, have, provide enough timber. So <clears throat> in the early 90s, uh, he bought, well, let me step back. Uh, he did buy He did buy the first Montana mill in 1981. That was in Townsend. And it was uh, owned at that time by the Wicks Co- uh, Forest Corporation, which may, maybe some people have heard of Wicks Furniture. Yeah. Well, that, that was the company. And... Uh, they went bankrupt in the early 80s, and Ron bought all their sawmills. They had seven sawmills, one in Montana, uh, one in Idaho, one in Oregon, and four of them down in California. He bought all those, so he he plunged right in wow. uh, to the timber industry. And, uh, you know, Townsend was one of the last mills to run. The California mills did run a little longer, uh, uh, but they eventually ran out of timber in California. They made things so hard, uh, the Forest Service just pretty much gave up on on federal uh, sales and and private sales got a lot harder to deal with down mm-hmm. there. So he he sold what lands he had down there, came to Montana, and uh, started buying up uh, property. And the first property they bought was the uh, watershed, which was over west of Anaconda, between Georgetown Lake and the uh, edge of Anaconda. All that uh, timber ground south of the highway to the top of the Pintlers. Oh yeah, uh, was owned by <clears throat> Dennis Washington, and he sold that to uh, Ron Yankee in the early '90s. And R.Y. Timber went to work on that, uh, supplying its mill in Townsend. And then uh, in 1996, 
Uh, he acquired the uh, Brand S mill in Livingston, and I had been working for Brand S up until about a year prior to the acquisition by RY, <clears throat> and it was it was it was a nice fit, and uh, so we we were running both mills, um, you know, in, in Livingston and Townsend. And we were cutting about 68 million board feet a year. Uh, roughly, that would be about 17,000 logging trucks, um, and you know, producing almost 160 million feet of lumber, or, you know, enough for 15,000 new homes. So things were wheeling right along at that time. Uh, we were dumping. I, we estimated about 50 million dollars directly into the economy. Uh, in Montana with all the loggers and uh, landowners were paying for and the parts and the fuel and everything. And, you know, as any economist will tell you, you know, each dollar of uh, manufacturing, you can expand that by $7 through the economy. So it had a big impact, uh, you know, roughly about $350 million a year to the economy. And you take that over 20 years, that's over $8 billion. So anyways, back in uh, getting back to the history um he bought the uh so he was working on the Dennis Washington property in ninety six when we bought uh Brandes. They had purchased a property right before they shut down. It was called the Lost Creek property. It was fourteen thousand acres over in the Anaconda area. And right away we uh set up a land exchange, worked on a land exchange, took a couple of years to do with the Forest Service, and we traded the Lost Creek property uh, for eight, it was 14,000 acres. I think we got about 8,000 acres of Forest Service lands that, you know, they wanted to dispose of. They had no access, and um, you know, it just wasn't didn't fit into their uh, uh, scheme of things. So we we picked up those lands, <clears throat> and then after shortly after that one closed, Mr. Yankee bought Big Sky Lumber Company out. And they were in, they had started a land exchange with the Forest Service in the Bozeman area called the uh, Gallatin Two Land Exchange, and uh, that took it took a few years to get that get that one settled. And what it was was a, a bunch of old Plum Creek lands that uh, Big Sky Lumber had purchased, and then RY purchased from them, and we traded those to the Forest Service about fifty thousand acres south of Bozeman, and and then uh, fourteen thousand or so east of Bridger Bowl, and we traded those to the Forest Service and got about 35,000 land acres in exchange, and 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 we both mills started logging that, and, and we would fill in the gaps with some Forest Service and state DNRC timber and private timber, and so that kept, you know, that kept the mills running uh, pretty good during that period of time when the Forest Service just wasn't doing much. They were only doing... 10% of what they'd been doing in the late 80s. And uh, so we uh, we completed that land exchange. And uh, after after that happened, we were about finished logging over on the Anaconda property. So we were able to uh, trade that. We, we worked on an exchange on that one with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And they had uh, purchased the property and and turned it back to the Forest Service, and the state of Montana even got about a third of those acres um, and put it uh, in their Garrity Mountain Winter Range for for wildlife over there. So, 
so anyways the, the the logging on that one was completed we actually we went a couple years after the uh, papers were signed and uh you know everybody liked the uh the harvest method and what was going on up there so we finished that and we took the proceeds mr yankee took the proceeds from that one and went down the road a few miles and purchased the rock creek cattle company ranch at deer lodge mm. which was a ninety thousand acre property and we logged on that and anyways he ended up selling that place to mr bill foley who you know a lot of people might know him he he owned whitefish mountain and i think a hockey team in las vegas and he you know another montana businessman he and he developed some of that property and and the, one of the portions that we logged, it was called the Spotted Dog. He ended up trading that back to the state of Montana, and now it's a wildlife uh, management area for uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And a funny story about that one: we, uh, you know, we logged that pretty heavy, and we, of course, we kept all the timber and all the streams and in in the femoral draws and and pretty much logged the rest of it, made a great elk habitat. Hmm. And about the same time, the Forest Service was looking at a little 50-acre sale south of Elliston, um, uh, some thinning, and uh, it got bogged down in court, and it was going to destroy destroy all the winter range, and you couldn't log that. But yet five miles over the hill, you know, we logged 28,000 acres, and it ended up into a wildlife management area. So go figure that one. That comes along um, in line with, with a, a lot of reports. When you look at uh, fixing America's forest, a uh, red one, and you pulled it up here. It was from the Property and Environment Research Center, PERC. And it was called Fix America's Forest, but they but they talked about the backlog of management. U.S. Forest Service manages 193 million acres of land, and there's a backlog of 80 million acres, almost half of that in need of restoration, and then another 63 million acres which are facing high or very high risk of wildfire. So over the over the course of a, a period of time, Montana has lost a lot of its mills, a lot of its timber production, um, and, and we've seen forest fires now uh, that are, are stronger than ever. I think last year, $3.5 in fighting forest fires. Ed Regan is with us, former resources manager for RY Timber in Townsend. Of course, we're talking about um, that mill shut down about three years ago. Uh, that was because of a a lack of timber supply. A couple of fires, though, were the setback uh, were setbacks that um, RY Timber couldn't recover from, and they recently announced they're closing their second mill in Montana, in the Livingston Mill. And um, Ed, again, thanks for being here. RY Timber, named after Ron Yonke, uh, like you said, from Boise, Idaho. Why did he focus on timber? What motivated him? It was quite a rags to riches story. You know, his dad uh, was originally from Wisconsin, and uh, he was headed to Alaska to make a fortune and. They ran out of money in Boise, and his father was a machinist by trade. So he ended up uh, getting a job as a machinist in Boise. And him and another guy, they built their own machine shop, and uh, it became one of the largest machine shops in the Pacific Northwest. And that was actually the flagship company for Yankee. Yeah. And in the early 60s, uh, Ron Ron uh, had started college. He finished one year, and his brother was uh, overseas in the military. And I, the father uh, had an accident or a stroke. I can't remember now. And Ron had to quit college, and he came home and took over the machine shop and 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 built that business into, you know, just, they deal with the mining industry, the timber industry, uh, oil and gas. They built tanks, and so 
Ron had always had an interest uh, with the sawmillers, and he, uh, you know, when the opportunity came up in uh, 81, uh, he bought the Wix, the seven Wix Forest Industries mills, and he found he found an industry he really enjoyed uh, working in. But besides that, he also, uh, him and a, a farmer friend and a rancher friend from Boise, they were uh, the original founders of the Micron technology uh, that was built and headquartered in, in Boise. Mm. Um, <clears throat> they donated the land and the seed money for the engineer that uh, came, it got re- he got run off of Wall Street and he had heard there was some venture capitalists in in Boise, so he went and he pitched the idea of dram chips to Yankee and uh, his two partners, and they put up the money to start start Micron Technologies. And uh, a couple of years after that, they they were friends with uh, J.R. Simplot, and then he came in. So the four of those guys actually started that company, you know, before it went public. So he, so they did real well on that one, and then Ron also. Uh, you know, we got involved in aviation. He had an aviation company, and they did all the life flights in Boise. He was a rancher. And then he got into the cogeneration business. He set up an energy division, and then the sawmills he had in California, they built cogeneration plants and, and supplied electricity to the plants and some of the surrounding areas and we always we always looked and tried to pencil it out in Montana trying to build a cogeneration plant onto our sawmills here but the the cost of hydropower was so much cheaper it was like 4 cents a kilowatt hour and break even back at that time was like 8 cents on a cogeneration plant so it never did pencil out mm. because it couldn't compete with the hydro in Montana yeah. but uh, we definitely looked at that um and then he bought he bought Nashua Homes down there in Boise and 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 rebuilt that company and uh, fish hatcheries and he had a ranch a big ranch in Jackpot and so he he was dabbling in everything but his favorite was the timber industry he just loved uh, he he'd come up to the mill a couple times a month and and I got the opportunity to work with him on some of these land deals and it was just. Uh, for for a little kid that grew up in the jungles of Chicago, it was just quite an experience, you know, just to be around him and, and watch how he operated. And, you know, if I was a better writer, I think I'd write a book on him, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll leave that to somebody else. But that's, you know, that's what stirred his interest was the machine shop was the flagship company and, and his working with the the timber people and the mines got him very interested in in getting into the timber industry and i think that's what motivated him you know um where i'm at right now i'm going to take another break i got a news headline break up coming then i want to come back and, and and get your thoughts on on what you have witnessed ed uh, as a you know the resource manager former resource manager for ry timber in towns in and again um, I think you said you were with Brand S before that for a while. A lot of years in Montana, we've lost a lot of resource production. Uh, I think the numbers are down now to like we're about five mils left out of 30 plus. Back live here again, we're talking about Montana's force. Uh, the conversation, uh, well, spurred on by what we've seen over the past several years, but recently a couple of setbacks from fires in our white timber in Livingston. 
has been forced to close. Uh, what will happen? Uh, talked with Dan Richards, wasn't on the air, but they will continue. They'll have contracts they still have to uh, to work through, and so there'll be some work still for about a, about a year or so. Uh, what is next? Uh, well, we'll talk with Julia Ultimus here in just a bit. Ed Regan is with us, former uh, RY Timber Resource Manager. Ed, uh, again, appreciate your, your time and your expertise today and your, your thoughts on, on this. Um, why don't you launch into what you have seen? I know there's been a lot of litigation. You and I are acquainted as uh, I toured your mill along with then uh, Representative Greg Jean Forte in 2017. I remember then you talking about, uh, and there's an article that uh, was written where it says you can rattle off, uh, rattle off a list of timber sales under litigation. And you did. I mean, in that list, you ran out of fingers uh, in that regard. Litigation has been a problem, hasn't it? Yes, it has. I, uh, you know, since about, from about 2007 to the time Townsend shut down in 19, I had a list of timber sales that we had purchased from the Forest Service. A little over 100 million board feet of logs in some form of litigation, um, you know, the uh, in the end, the uh, the enviros they might have prevailed on ten percent or less, but ninety percent of the timber sales that the foresters put up went through. But the uh, the NEPA or the Equal Access to Justice process, you know, these guys would go in there and they would uh, just file lawsuits on everything and. Uh, it would delay our timber sales. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd be planning to go into one timber sale and have contracts signed with loggers, and all of a sudden at the 11th hour, there's an injunction or a temporary restraining order. So now you got to switch gears and go find another uh, another place for this contractor to work. And, and it, it just got hard to find other places. You know, you had, uh, once our lands were harvested, uh, you know, we became about 60, 70 percent dependent on Forest Service timber. So you had you had these uh, sales in under contract and in the pipeline, but they were all in various stages of litigation. So it was almost impossible to try to, uh, you know, pin anything down. And, and, and it made it difficult on contractors. You know, you'd sign a contract for this coming summer, but then you wouldn't know if uh, there'd be last minute uh, mm-hmm. injunctions and. And, and those types of things. So it really, it got difficult, and we weren't able to run towns in the, the full two shifts because of that. So we eventually decided that uh, we'd have to shut one of the mills down and, and just redirect all the timber that we had to Livingston and run run that mill full production, which is where it was before the fire um, it took place. Uh, things were looking pretty good. <clears throat> we had uh, plenty of timber in the pipeline, even enough to overcome potential litigation which still ha- is still happening by the way but yeah. but then uh you know we did get uh, the planer fire was uh started it it started back in September I think of uh, 22 and the, uh, the owners made the decision to rebuild that and then uh the more recent fire in the sawmill back early in February this month uh, uh that pretty much uh took the uh the wind out of the sails um you know mrs yaki now is is uh getting up there in age and i just doesn't i don't think she wants to deal with uh with that anymore and 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 the struggles um so i hope i'm i'm optimistic you know i think the the, the plant in livingston has sufficient uh timber under contract and there's wood there to be planed and a new planer. I, I'm I'm really hopeful that uh, you know somebody will be able to step in there and, and has purchased 
the whole plant and you know re- rebuild what needs to be rebuilt and you know keep the jobs and in uh, the forestry alive on that end of the state our our national forests definitely need to have an outlet for commercial products because you you know you're not going to be able to just uh, go up and hand fall every acre on the forest that needs treatment and not get any money in return for it so sawmills are very important yeah. to help carry the cost of some of that stewardship work that the forest service likes to do and and so our national forests actually need a sawmill in Livingston and I'm I'm hopeful that uh, you know somebody's going to come along and maybe make an offer on the whole place and run it as a sawmill it's got everything it needs to continue on so I'm just praying that that'll happen. Ed Regan, I, I really appreciate your time here today, and we'll be following up with you, sir. Joining now uh, here on Voice of Montana is Julia Altima. She is the executive director of the Montana Wood Products Association. I've got a call and a text message to get to, and we will. First, let's welcome uh, Julia. Julia, thank you, thank you for being here. You had talked, in fact, had, had noted this last week and speaking in front of, um, I think it was the Appropriations Committee in our state capitol, about this timber mill shutting down and the ramifications. What do you see from this, Julie? And thank you again for being here. Oh, yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, good morning, everybody. Yeah, it was, a, it was, the timing was bad or good or whatever, but I'm sitting waiting to testify on House Bill 424, which would have increased the fire suppression account from $100 million to $300 million and taken the fuels mitigation from $5 million to $25 million, and that $25 million is really important to the timber industry because it's the money that if the fire suppression account is at a certain level that we can tap into that for some of these projects on private timber land as well as, as some states. So um, every time they, the state goes out for a request for proposals, we always get way more uh, proposals and requests than we have money. So that was that was what I was going to testify on, and two minutes before I get up, I find out that um, that RY is shutting down entirely, which is horrible news. It was, made me made me very sad. Yeah, um, it's, it's just a tragic loss for the families that that work there and rely on that income, and for the local community as well. I mean, there's a huge ripple effect every time a timber mill goes down. There's a huge effect because it affects the the workers in the woods, and it affects your tax base. It affects taxes that are going to be paid. It affects the people being able to pay their bills. And it also affects the timber value. It affects stumpage value. So, you know, in 2022, let's just talk the state right now. In 2022, they um, received about a little over $9 million in stumpage revenue from the timber sales that they had sold. You know, that was up about 2% over the year before. I would say, you know, going forward, if somebody doesn't come in and buy that mill, that's going to go down because stumpage values always go down when you have less people bidding on timber sales. What, what are stump- economics? What are stumpage values? Um, it's when you know you you put out a timber sale and somebody comes in and bids on it. It's it's the value of the timber, mm-hmm. so they have to account for. Road road maintenance costs, if there's road packages that are involved, transportation costs, you know, labor costs, contracts, and so they bid based on what they think they can make a profit on. And if there's only one bidder, you know, you know economics. If there's only one bidder or no bidders, that value of that timber will go way down, uh, way down. And that's what's helping support the school trust. Oh, yeah. So, again, the state manages about 780,000 acres of timberland in the state of Montana, they have about a 60,000 board foot sustained yield timber uh, target that they try to hit every year. They've always been very good at hitting their target. Um, they were a little bit less this year, but um, we rely on that timber. And 
like I said, the values are just not going to be there. It's not going to be there for the state, and it's not going to be there for the federal government either. It's, that's why it's really critical that we keep these mills in place, that infrastructure is so important. I want to take a, a comment here because we'll, we'll run out of time. Dave from Elliston is listening. That's a mighty signal out of Helena, KCAP, 950 AM. And good morning, Dave. You're, you're on the air here with Julia Altimus and the Voices of Montana. Well, hi, Tom, Ed, and Julia, thanks. And uh, I'll try and be brief, but my background is in timber management. I'm a forester. Worked on national forests on uh, Fremont and Oregon, Umatilla, uh, Salmon in Idaho, Cherokee and Tennessee, and 10 years on the hill, and I've been retired about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was a pretty good forester. I left my pipeline full. Uh, that's uh, having timber sales in the works for the mills and for the people and for the economy. And uh, I was good at planning, so I got eventually became a NEPA appeals and litigation coordinator uh, for over seven years on the Cherokee and worked in planning 10 years on the Helena. And, you know, most people don't realize that they knew how our service had to operate, it would just blow their minds. I mean, and I think a lot of the fault goes back to Congress. starts with the 1970 National Environmental Policy Act, Good Intentions. Has a lot of good stuff to it, but once the appeals and litigation uh, system was opened up to uh, the timber management, once the politics of the federal government uh, started in charge of forests and regions and national programs who are not foresters, who did not believe in multiple use management, with the activist uh, courts we have. It was a disaster waiting to happen. We always see all these new bills and different things, and you hear all these great uh, bills coming out. But, you know, any bill and any law that Congress passes has implementing regulations and the courts get involved. So it's just a mess. Forest plans that people have to follow are thousands of pages. I hope and pray that our national forests maybe one day could be more managed by the states like maybe they should be uh, rather than the national forests because only about – 25% 25% of national forest land is available for timber management, and appeals and litigation just bog it down. They might, we might manage 5% of our land base, and I, that's a shame. So I'll shut up, and Julia and Ed, keep fighting a good fight. Thank you. Dave, I appreciate that, and thanks for, for calling back in. Uh, I, I do recall previous conversation. That expertise as a, as a former forest uh, service worker. Uh, Julia, I'm going to combine that, and, and, and as we talk about uh, NEPA, we've got a, a text message here, too. Uh, that deals with the Endangered Species Act, favorite weapon of the Marcus, Mar- Marxists, again, according to the, the message here, in the radical environmental movement. Doesn't this law need to be reformed after a half century? We have kind of talked about it a little bit. We might be able to do things like good neighbor authority, and maybe the states can empower as much as they can. But I don't know that there's a will in Washington to make necessary adjustments to NEPA, to make necessary adjustments to the Endangered Species Act or the Equal Access to Justice Act. Are those things ever going to budge? Oh, my gosh. Well, first, I appreciate the comments of the caller yeah. um, and for his work as a forester within the Forest Service. It's not it's not an easy job. You know, Congress, you know, you're at the you're at the whim of the administration. So every time an administration changes, we get policy changes. And it's really been very difficult. You know, I've been working on this for 35 years and it's been very difficult to get anything passed through Congress. I know that we are trying desperately to fix the cottonwood issue. Um, it's, again, hopefully we can get it into the farm bill that they're working on. We almost got it. I was on the call last time. We almost got it um, in one of the bills, but it was strip, stripped from one of the bills, uh, federal bills recently to fix that. And that's, you know, consultation. 
being able to do consultation at the project level and not at the plan level. We're getting constantly sued on that. So right now in Region 1, which is, you know, northern Idaho as well, but in Region 1 we have 564 million board feet of timber and litigation, of which about 170 million board feet is suspended. So if you do the math, there's about 5,000 board feet on a logging truck. So you, you times that, you know, by 170 million board feet, and that's a lot of logging trucks that are not moving wood fiber from the forest to the mill. And it's important that we do that because if you look at the forest action plan, the state forest action plan that was com- completed just in 2020, of the growth, annual growth of live trees of five inches in diameter and, and above, there's 877.6 million cubic feet growing. But the mortality of that same area, five, you know, five-inch diameter and above, the mortality is 936, 931.6 million cubic feet. So we're in, a, we're in a net loss every single year of 54 million cubic feet, and it's only getting worse. It's only getting worse. So if we're going to address the 9 million acres that was addressed in the State Forest Action Plan and the 3.4 million that's addressed in the wildland-urban interface, we've got to have the timber industry here because who's going to do the work? Where is the product going to go, and who's going to do the work? So these are really important questions that I think um, not only do our state legislators and our state leadership need to grapple with, but certainly Congress. If we're going to fix litigation, we've got to do something, and we've tried a lot of small things to bite around the apple and you know just bite around the edges and yeah. see if that works. But so far, it has not. The Good Neighbor Authority, though, uh, I know there's been a lot of positive results off of that. It's just too small of a, a tool, so to speak, to make the, the changes that are necessary to protect our forests? Well, I think it's a great it's a great tool. It's been around for over 10 years and not so much in Montana. I think we've been around here for eight years in Montana. But it's a great tool. And, again, it's not who owns the land. It's who manages the land. So if the state can come in and help manage the, the federal estate because they can do a better job, they can do it quicker, they're more nimble, and um, some of these GNA sales have gone to court because it's still federal NEPA that, that they have to do. It's not state NEPA, but it's federal NEPA. So they still have to go to federal court, but we're winning. We're winning in court. So it's a great project and a program, and we're trying to increase the pace and scale of Good Neighbor Authority. The Forest Service would like to get to 500 million board feet of their target. All right now they're sitting about 440 million board feet. They'd like to get to that 500, and how to get there is, is through the help, state's help. It's not a program that's going to go away anytime soon. It's The growth is slow, but we're encouraged, and we keep uh, trying to find ways to increase you know, what they're able to do. Montana Wood Products Association, founded in 1972, but, but a big voice here in Montana, MontanaForest.com. For more information, Julia Ultimus, Executive Director of the Wood Products Association. What's next for, for, for Livingston? What does the industry do or what do communities do? I know it's not the first time you've mentioned this as well. From 30 mills to now, we're under half a dozen. Unfortunately, we've seen this play out in a lot of communities. What works in terms of recovery? Yeah, um, so 33 mills have shut down since 1990. And if you look at the list, I have the list of Uh all the mills that have shut down since then. Um, They just don't come back. It's very capital-intensive. I don't want to be uh, negative about what could happen in Livingston. Mm-hmm. I think of all the mills that I've shut down, that's the one that is ripe for somebody to come along and purchase. There's not a lot of competition on the west side, or, I'm sorry, the east side of the divide. So maybe somebody would come along and purchase that one. It would be great if they would. It's definitely needed. 
there's some smaller mills in the in the east. They have a much smaller footprint, and could they take up the slack? No, they're yeah. just not. That's not what they're about. They're more boutique forestry. Um, these larger mills can handle bigger trees and more volume, and and that's what we need right now is is to be able to have forest health and wildlife and recreation opportunities and aquatics and all that all that stuff that we all rely on those values that we all appreciate. We have to do more, not less work. So what happens, you know, as far as Livingston goes, I mean, I don't want to speculate, but I would hope that somebody is listening and uh, has their eye on that mill. That would be awesome for the employees and certainly for all the benefits and all the uses that we need out of that area of Montana for sure.